This message is part of the series, Asking for a Friend, what we all think, but think we shouldn't. The entire series can be found at fromthefray.com slash asking. Hey, welcome back to uh, Asking for a Friend, our attempt to uh, walk through the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, listen in as the wise, old, aging Solomon, the, the crotchety, unfiltered, kind of salty Solomon talks about different areas of our life that sometimes we don't want to talk about ourselves. Uh, some of the things that Solomon addresses, we kind of feel like it would be an indictment on, on our faith if we would ask these questions out loud. And so we're asking them for a friend. Uh, maybe our friend would like to know the type of stuff that, that we're talking about here in Ecclesiastes. And one of the things that our friend would definitely want to know about is pain. That's what Solomon's talking about today. Pain. It's universal. Everybody has experienced pain. It doesn't matter how old or young or your background, your belief system. We all can relate to pain. And, and pain affects us at every level of our life. The, the easiest one is the physical pain. Right? That's easiest because right? we can deal with it. If it's physical pain. But even deeper than that, we also have emotional pain. We get our feelings hurt. That cuts deeper and that one's harder to, to wound. Harder to, to, to patch up the wound. And there's spiritual pain. Spiritual pain goes even further below because spiritual pain has us asking, you know, what am I worth anything? Do I have any value? Where, where did I come from? Why am I in this world? Where am I going? Those deep questions can cause some pain if they're, they're not answered. Lots of different kinds of pain, and as many kinds of pain as there are, we have come up with different ways of trying to deal with it. Right? We try to, to medicate it to alleviate the pain, try to maybe get therapy to talk through it. We try to sometimes just avoid it or go around it. We try to resist pain. One of the things we try to do is we try to understand pain. We try to explain it. We try to figure out where it came from. We try to have answers to, to why things hurt the way that they do. The idea is that if I can at least understand the source of the pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or spiritual pain, if I can at least understand the source of it, then maybe that will help me carry it. That will help me deal with it a little bit better. Sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to answer them. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today, because one of the most common ways we try to answer and explain and, and rationalize pain is through this system called karma. Now, karma is something that no Christian, especially a Western Christian, would ever admit to believing in. Keep that hippie voodoo Buddha karma stuff. I don't believe in that stuff. But I, I would submit to you that we do. At, at, at really every level, functionally, we act as if karma is the way the whole world operates. Karma is the, the basic idea that what goes around comes around. Karma says all of the good and all of the bad in the universe is always balancing out so that things eventually become fair. Karma says that if something good happens to you, it's because you did something good and the universe or God or Tooth Fairy is rewarding you for doing good. Consequently, if you do something bad, karma will come along and it will punish you for doing something bad. That's why we say things like, well, what did I do wrong? What am I being punished for? We don't understand the source of the pain. It's because we're trying to draw on karma as a way to understand the entire world as if everything has, a, has an immediate reaction to it. And that's why things work. Right? We learn that in science class, don't we? Science says that for every action, every, there's an immediate and opposite reaction in the universe. That's karma. But when we carry that idea over into our personal lives, we think everything happens for a reason. We say that, right? Is that true? If we can always find the reason for why something happens, then, then we, can, 
We can deal with life and pain better. But what about when we can't find the reason? What about when we don't understand where it comes from? Karma on a spiritual level says that if I can just work hard enough, if I can just be good enough, if I can just think pure enough, well then things will work out and, and God will reward me. It's basically self-salvation. But what happens when that doesn't work? When you do good, you think right, you act pure, and things still don't work out the way that they're supposed to. When karma doesn't work, that hurts. What, what Solomon does this morning is, is he addresses head-on this idea that we, we cling to, the fact that things are supposed to be fair. Solomon says, no. Where is that written that things are going to be fair? And he exposes what we kind of already know to be true. Because we only really believe in karma when things go bad for someone else, right? If something goes bad for someone that we don't like, what do we say? Well, she got what's coming to her, right? You mess with the bull, you get the horns, baby. Play stupid games, you get stupid prizes, right? That's what we say when someone we don't like gets what's coming to them. That's karma, and we believe in it for bad people. But what about when bad happens to you or someone you love? Something happens that you don't understand. Then we reach for that universal phrase that every three-year-old knows, that's not fair. That's not fair. Karma says everything's fair. But our experience in life shows us that's just not true. This is what Solomon is going to address this morning. He wants to uproot and dig out, because it's down deep inside of us, dig out this, this idea that life is always going to be fair down here and it's always going to be orderly and it's always going to be just and it's always going to be predictable and, and it's always going to be right. Solomon says, no, you know better than that. Right off the bat, he says here in verse 15, he says, I have seen everything in this meaningless life including the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. Right? He said, That's the opposite of karma. Good people die young Bad people get to live old lives? That's not fair. That's not karma. That's not what goes around comes around. So how do we make sense of that? I mean, if we're a believer, if we believe in God and bad things happen to good people, then we shake our fist at him. And we say, God, you should have done this. You could have done this, but you didn't. Why? I want an answer. Why? Our hearts align us to say that, that we're obligated to an answer. We're obligated for things to make sense to us. And we get mad when they don't. Say, God, that's your job. That's what you're up there to do, right? To make sure the bad things don't happen to good people. And you didn't do that. So what's wrong? See, karma drives us to even ask that question. But it's not any easier to reconcile if you're a non-believer, if you don't believe in God. If there is a God, you can shake your fist at him. But if there's not a God, then there's really no basis to expect fair at all. Right? If there's no God up there controlling things in the universe, turning the dials and flipping the switches and pulling the levers then there's no way to make sure things end up fair. It's just chance and survival. So whether you're a non-believer or a believer, when bad things happen to good people, we all instinctively know that karma is too simplistic. It doesn't have the resources to help us endure pain and carry it through. This is what Solomon is going to unlock and, and unpack and explain for us today. He's going to kind of treat karma, I want you to think of it this way. He's going to treat karma like a pair of, of smudged, dirty lenses. 
that are kind of cracked and really dirty. Solomon's going to take them off our face. He's going to clean them. He's going to polish them. He's going to fix them. He's going to put them back on our face and say, karma was the broken glasses. Here's a clean, realistic way to actually understand the way the world works. At least that's what he's trying to do. That's what he's going to journal, and that's what we're going to kind of follow him on his exploration today to try and figure out, is there, there has to be a better way than karma. What is it? What is it? So let's just follow him along as, as he journals and, and explores and thinks out loud to try to find an orderly way to understand how the universe works. Solomon's addressing the question, why do bad things happen to good people? We all ask that. We all want to know it. Solomon says, well, let's, let's see if it's answerable. So chapter 7, verse 15, we already read that. Solomon says, good people die young sometimes. Bad people get to live a long life. It's not fair. It's not. It's the most anti-karma statement ever. Sometimes life just isn't fair, Solomon says. And then he moves on, verse 16. He says, so don't be too good or too wise. Why destroy yourself? On the other hand, don't be too wicked either. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? Pay attention to these instructions, for anyone who fears God will avoid both extremes. Solomon's saying in verse 16, don't be self-righteous. Don't set yourself up as this perfect example of morality. Don't be self-righteous. But also in verse 17, don't be willfully sinful or intentionally wicked either. Neither of those work. Don't, don't try to reduce life and contentment and, and joy down to something that you can either earn through being really, really good, working really, really hard, also, don't think that life is as easy as saying, well, I can just go out and be self-indulgent and, and intentionally evil and give myself whatever I want, and then I'll be happy. Solomon says, no, neither of those extremes work. And we see both of those extremes in one of the most famous stories Jesus told, the story of the prodigal son. Right? We had an older brother who was really, really good, and he was going to obey all the rules and get the father to love him because he was so good. And then we had a, a, a younger prodigal brother who said, I'm just going to be really, really bad. I'm just going to create my own life by going out and charting my own course and doing whatever I want. In, in the end, neither of those extremes worked for those brothers. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work for us. Solomon's saying, avoid both of those extremes because, in spite of what karma says, we are not in charge of our own destiny. Karma is buried deep inside of us, making us think, I can work hard enough, be good enough, or be indulgent and, and give myself whatever I want long enough that eventually I'll create what I need in life. The, the Bible, Solomon, Jesus, from front to back says, you're not in charge of your own destiny. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. Neither one of these extremes work. And, and in case we're holding on to the illusion that we can, through our own good work, or bad, whatever, kind of force God into giving us what we want, Solomon says in verse 20, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Don't eavesdrop on others. You may hear your servant curse you, for you know how often you yourself have cursed others. You and I fall underneath the umbrella of not a single person on earth. Right? So we've already forfeited the moral high ground. Solomon's saying, so you already know that's true. Like you're, you're, you're not this perfect elder brother who's going to earn God's favor by being good because you know you're really not that good. So what we often do, Solomon addresses next, is we said, well, at least I'm not as bad as her. Right? Solomon's saying, don't, don't eavesdrop, don't spy, don't try to find out, at least I'm better than this person or that person, because you're going to get a taste of your own medicine. Those people are doing the same thing you're doing. They're saying bad things about you, trying to prove that they're better than you. 
So this, this cycle of eavesdrop and gossip and eavesdrop and gossip and trying to, to one-up and prove that we're better than somebody else, Solomon says, that doesn't work either. That doesn't work either. Karma doesn't work. It turns out sometimes life is just not going to be fair. It's not going to be understandable. It doesn't matter if you do all the good things or just give yourself everything you ever wanted. Neither of those are going to deliver you the happiness and the contentment that you're looking for. So he keeps, he keeps looking. Solomon keeps journaling. Verse 23, he says, I've always tried my best to just let wisdom be my guide. Let wisdom guide my thoughts and actions. And I said to myself, I'm determined to be wise. But it didn't work. Wisdom is always difficult, distant and difficult to find. I, I searched everywhere, determined to find wisdom and to understand the reason for things. I was determined to prove to myself that wickedness is stupid and that foolishness is madness. Solomon's just saying, I'm, okay, all right, karma doesn't work. Bad things happen to good people, so I've got to throw that out. But I want some kind of an explanation for why the events of our life unfold the way that they do. If it's not cause and effect, then what is it? Solomon's, I'm, I'm trying to find the answer to that. But instead, this is what he discovers. Look at the next verse. He said, I discovered that a seductive woman is a trap more bitter than death. Her passion is a snare, and her soft hands are chains. Those who are pleasing to God will escape her, but sinners will be caught in her snare. In other words, while trying to be all philosophical and intellectual about right and wrong, good and evil, while trying to put together a manual for all of the wicked, foolish things that we should avoid and, and explain how things unfold in our lives, while trying to do that, Solomon gets caught up again in, in a trap. He gets caught up in his favorite trap. Women were Solomon's favorite sin. We know Solomon had some pretty big woman issues. So this verse, Solomon's kind of railing against women, it's understandable because Solomon had some deeply seated women issues. How do we know that? His, his 700 wives and 300 live-in girlfriends kind of gave him away. If you're burning through that many women, that makes you the least common denominator. If you're always tossing people aside because you can't find one that suits you, well, that says more about you than it does about anybody else. So Solomon just kind of takes a detour and says, Man, I was trying to figure out all the right things and the wrong things and make a manual for how life works, and I got caught in my own trap. I actually got caught in his favorite trap. So I think it's worth stopping to ask just briefly, what's your favorite trap? What's your favorite sin? Which, which bait are you just looking for? even though you know the bait is only there to disguise the hook. In what areas are you making it easy for your enemy to trip you up and catch you? We all, we all have something. What, what's your favorite sin that you're just looking for a chance to indulge into? What areas of your life are you just unlocking the door, opening the door, putting down your weapon, and just letting the enemy walk in and sit down in your living room? Always be asking yourself, how am I making it easy for my enemy to attack me? This was the issue for Solomon. It was women. For a lot of guys, that's the favorite sin. What's yours? Always be asking yourself that. Let's keep moving, though. He makes this detour. He kind of rants against women, talks about his favorite sin. He says in the next verse, but this is my conclusion. So he starts to draw a way forward. He said, I discovered, after looking at the matter from every possible angle, though I have searched repeatedly, I haven't found what I was looking for. Only one of a thousand men is virtuous, but not one woman. 
I did find this, though. God created people to be virtuous, but they've each turned to follow their own downward path. Now, now calm down, women, for a second. Hang on. This is hyperbole. Solomon is exaggerating for effect. Solomon's not anti-women. We just established that a few seconds ago, right? He's not anti-women. In, in his other books in the Bible, especially Proverbs, he has some very high praise to say about women. Solomon thinks highly of women. But what he's doing here is he's exaggerating for effect, saying, after spending a lifetime searching to understand pain, your pain and my pain, after trying to figure out why the world works the way that it does, trying to have a roadmap of some instructions that we can all follow to make life predictable so that we can avoid pain, Solomon says, I never found what I was looking for. What I did find is that people just don't act the way they should. God created us to act one way, sure, but inevitably we quite often act the other. There are times when we get it right and our loved ones get it right, but there are just as many, if not more times, when we get it wrong. Even the best of people, you need to hear this, listen to me, even the people who genuinely care about you are going to fail you from time to time. That's what Solomon's unpacking here. You expect fair. It's not realistic. You expect your loved ones to always get it right. It's not realistic. F further down, he addresses this in chapter 8, because sometimes at this point we're tempted to pause and, and lift up our favorite human as an example of, of, well, this is righteous, this person gets it right all the time. Further down, Solomon addresses this. He says in uh, chapter 8, I thought deeply about all that goes on under the sun, where people have the power to hurt each other. There's a sermon in itself. I've seen wicked people buried with honor, yet they were the ones who frequented the temple and are now praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. This, too, is meaningless. When a crime is not punished quickly, people feel that it is safe to do wrong. Solomon here is talking about our favorite humans, the ones we bury with honor. Sometimes we even change our calendar to give our most favorite humans a special day, a special holiday, where we stay home just to think about how great that human particularly was. Solomon says maybe they frequented the temple, they went to church, they did a lot of work, they gave some great speeches, but they did those things in the same city where they also did a whole lot of bad and got away with it. I don't, I don't want to give you examples of, of heroes here who have their own special days because you'd think I'm being political and I'm not. It's pervasive everywhere. Anytime we lift up someone to be a, just a beacon of you know, repre representing our faith or our nationality or our, our race or our creed or our background, anytime we lift a human up and say, that person is the best of us, Solomon says, they're going to fail you. People aren't made to support that kind of pressure. No one is. Be very careful, Solomon would say, about creating heroes with holidays, because even the best among us fail from time to time. We don't want to accept that because we want to believe in karma. We want to believe that we can chart our own destiny. We want to believe, hey, he did it. He was really, really good. He lived a really great life, and that's the reason why he's a hero. Solomon says, no, it's not. Because, for one, he wasn't that good. He just got away with things. The same way that you've gotten away with some stuff before, right? I mean, verse 11 here, we all can attest to that. 
How many times have you sinned longer than you would have because you just weren't getting caught? We all can attest to that. Even our heroes. If we put them up on a pedestal, they're going to fall off. This isn't pessimism. This is just reality. This is Solomon saying, give me your old, broken, dirty glasses. Let me clean the smudges off and put them back on so that you can see the world the way it actually works. The way it actually works. So, so what does that mean? How does it work? How do we navigate in a broken world where Solomon says people have power to hurt each other? What does that leave you and I to do when we get up and go to work on Monday? Or, or when our loved ones have pain that we can't stop? Or, or we're being punished unfairly? What do we do? Solomon gives us not a solution, but some survival methods. He says in uh, chapter 8, verse 2, First of all, obey the king. Obey the king since you vowed to God that you would. Don't try to avoid doing your duty. And don't stand with those who plot evil. For the king can do whatever he wants. His command is backed by great power. No one can resist or question this. So first of all, Solomon says, you need to realize you have a boss. You're not in charge of your own destiny. Someone sits over you, and they have authority over you. You need to remember that. That will keep us, at least it will begin to keep us, from thinking that I can chart my own destiny and I can make my own decisions. Solomon says, well, maybe, but there's someone that outranks you, and you have to do what that person says. You have to. This is not anarchy. Everybody has a boss. So I, I would ask you to stop for a second and ask, who in your life right now gets to tell you no? Who gets to put up some, some guardrails or some bumpers to say, you can't go over here, you can't go over here, you have to go this direction? Who tells you that and you actually listen to them? If you can't come up with someone like that, that's at least part of your problem. That's, that's a source of frustration. Because you're acting as if you can chart your own course and you have no authority over you, Solomon says we all do. I'd say here's the most practical way I know to put it. This, this is one of those things hard to swallow at first, but the more we embrace it, it, it because it's reality, it starts to deliver peace. Understand this. Every decision that affects our life, your life and mine, those decisions are made by people who have the authority to make that decision they're not made, stay with me, the decisions that change your life and change my life, they're not necessarily made by the, the right people or the honest people or the good people or the smartest people. No. Decisions are made by the people who have the authority to make the decisions. It's not fair. right? It's not fair. You have to uproot karma from deep inside you and think, well, but the people who make the decisions should be the best people making them. Sometimes, but often, no. Often, the people who make decisions are simply the ones who have the power to do that. Once we accept that reality and begin to cooperate with the way the world really works and cooperate with the inevitable, then we can stop worrying about things that are not under our control, stop thinking, well, it should have been this person making that decision. You know, should is a really heavy weight to carry. All the shouldas and couldas and wouldas, you can't get out from underneath that. That's, that's an oppressing weight that will crush you. Instead, Solomon would say, realize, hey, if you told the king you would do it, do it. 
Maybe the king's stupid. Maybe your boss is a jerk. I don't know. Maybe your boss has no moral compass. But if he's your boss, he's your boss. Don't create extra friction, Solomon would say, by pretending like he's not. If he is, then he is. Do your duty. He would go on to say, in the next verse, those who obey him, the king, your boss, will not be punished. Those who are wise will find a time and a way to do what is right, for there is a time and a way for everything, even when a person is in trouble. So Solomon's saying, do your duty, and, sure, follow the conscience God gave you. He gave you a conscience for a reason. Do your duty, follow your boss, stick to your conscience, absolutely, but realize that sticking to your conscience may have consequences. Especially when the people making those decisions are not the smart ones, the good ones, the right ones, the holy ones, the moral ones. All right, don't break your conscience, but realize that's going to have consequences because this is not a fair world. Everything is not just. The universe is not aligned with karma. It's just the way that it is. And this is the reason why, stick with me, these, these ending verses of chapter 8 are so important to us. Solomon begins to kind of land the plane. He begins to kind of to bring this down. So stick with me. Solomon says, uh, verse 12, Even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be better off. The wicked will not prosper, for they don't fear God. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. Solomon's saying, if you're keeping score horizontally, if you're keeping score by looking around and, and keeping track of who's getting ahead, who's being oppressed, who's being hurt, who's being rewarded, who's living a long life, who has power, who doesn't. Solomon says, if you keep score horizontally, it will always appear to be unfair. Always. If, if you look at celebrities, they're probably not the ones who are doing Bible studies all the time. They're not the ones who are giving to the needy. Some of them are, but not all of them. Fair? No. Realistic? Yes. If Solomon has said it once, he said it a hundred times in this book, the key to, to living life well with peace down here on earth is realizing, listen, you're not going to be on earth forever. That's the key to this. That's how we finish well, is we remember, even though we see things under the sun, God keeps score vertically. He sits over the sun. And he's reminding us through all these realistic lessons that Solomon gives us to, to realign ourselves, we're not going to be down here forever. We're not going to be. And so when things look unfair, say, well, it's because it's an unfair world. But I'm not going to be stuck in it forever. I'm not going to be. He reminds us one more time, verse 14, that's not all that's meaningless in our world. In this life, good people are often treated as though they were wicked. And wicked people are often treated as though they were good. This is so meaningless. This is like two, two bookends, right? We started today, chapter 7, verse 15. And then we're starting to wrap it up, chapter 8, verse 14, saying the exact same thing. Solomon is crushing the concept of karma. He's crushing the idea of fair. He's crushing the idea of an immediately recognizable cause and effect. If I do this, I'll get that. If I do this, I'll get that. Solomon says, you know yourself it doesn't work. Sometimes you can be good and die young. Sometimes you can be bad and get away with it. That's just the way it works down here. If we think that justice and order and fairness have to submit to our logic and our emotion, then in effect we're saying that we're God and we're sitting over the sun. Solomon says it's not the way it works, man. No. 
He's up there. You're down here. If everything made sense to you, that would make you God. I've said it many times. If you only believe in a God who makes sense to you and who you like, who gives you everything that you want, then you don't believe in God at all. You just believe in your emotions and your intellect. Sometimes things won't make sense. And you can scratch your head. You can work real hard. He'll address that in a second. And they're still not going to make sense. If they always do make sense to you, that should be an indicator. I'm not thinking hard enough about this. Or I've put myself in a position that, that only God can sit in. He's crushing this idea that everything is always going to make sense. And with that, he crushes the very basis for the question we're asking this week. Why do bad things happen to good people? Solomon says, you're really in effect, I don't understand the question. That, that, that assumes that karma works. That bad things only happen to you know, bad people like communists and cat lovers. No. Sometimes cat lovers live a long, happy life in spite of the fact that they're bad, evil cat lovers. I, I would just submit to you one example, the life of Jesus. A very, very good human who had some very, very bad things happen to him. And for no other, nothing else, the life of Jesus should also show us that this prosperity gospel that says God wants you to be happy and, and, uh, and rich throughout life, that's, that's just stupid. It's, it's sinful. Because the guy we worship died broken and homeless and naked on a tree by himself. And he was really good. So this idea that if you do really good and you think really good and you act really right, then it's gotta, God's going to reward you with a, you know, you know, a camel with rims on it and trinkets are going to fall from the sky. And, and, and Solomon says, that's not anywhere in here. I've read the whole book. Sometimes you can do really good and you can get rewarded with really bad. Sometimes someone can do really bad and get away with it and their life can seem to be really just fine. And then he just moves on. Which reminds us that Ecclesiastes is not a book full of solutions. Sometimes he asks questions and he doesn't answer them. Ecclesiastes is not a solution manual. It's a survival manual. Solomon doesn't promise to answer all of our questions. Actually, he says some of them are just not answerable. But what he does promise to do is help us survive. Help us make it through life. He just comes out and says it here. Verse 16. In my search for wisdom and my observation of people's burdens here on earth, I discovered that there is ceaseless activity, day and night. Solomon says, we're wearing ourselves out. We're running ourselves ragged. We're making our hearts anxious. We're making our souls depressed. We're making our bodies broken because we're trying to have all the answers. We're trying to right all the wrongs. We're trying to do all the good. We're trying to earn all the promotions fix all the problems, put all the puzzles together. Solomon says, in reality, no. No one can discover everything God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people discover everything, no matter what they claim. This, too, I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. Solomon says, that's the way the world works. So how do we survive? What do we do with that? If we come to grips with the fact that we're not going to be able to solve every problem and right every wrong, then how do we just survive until Tuesday? Solomon tells us. I love this. Check this out, verse 15. So I recommend having fun. Because there is nothing better for people in all this world, and all of this world, under the sun, than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. 
That way they will experience some happiness along with all the hard work God gives them under the sun. I, I like this plan. Church, we can, we can do this. How does Solomon respond to all of our, our ceaseless activity and our anxiety and our searching for answers and our, and our wrestling with unfairness? What does Solomon say? Go home, man. Take your pants off. Sit in your chair. Have a beer. Watch some TV. Do a barbecue. Serious. That's his prescription. And before you dismiss it, remember, this is Solomon. This is scripture. And just consider for a second, what Solomon is prescribing is an act of faith. It requires faith to do what Solomon says here in verse 15. Because while everybody else is still out there working overtime, working weekends, never Sabbathing, acting as, as if all their ceaseless activity is required to make the universe work, while they're out there doing all that, you're going home and you're saying, I have faith that God's got the wheel. And that's always a better plan than me driving the car. I'm going to get up and I'm going to shovel my coal and I'm going to do the best I can with what I have and then I'm going to go home and trust that God's going to take care of everything else. That takes faith. It takes faith to do, faith to do this. Working and worrying and stressing as if every job, every relationship, every problem, every wrong, every injustice relied solely on you. There's no faith in that. And you already know there's no peace in that. There's no peace. So instead, Solomon says, go home, man. Take off your pants. Have a drink. Watch the Colts game. But I, I got I to gotta solve. I got to fix the world. No, man, listen. Go home. Take off your pants. Sit in your chair. Have a drink. Watch the Colts game. That's an act of faith. Let me close with this. You know the real reason we don't do this? You know the real reason we don't embrace verse 15 and just have peace? We have ceaseless activity and we work and we worry and, and, we, and, we, and we cry and, and, and we strive to fix everything. You know the real reason we do that instead of just embracing chapter 15 or verse 15 here? It's not because you're afraid your enemies will not get justice. Sometimes we worry about that, but that's not the real reason we don't just have peace. It's also not because you're afraid that your loved ones won't receive all the goodness and, and the mercy that's due to them. We worry about that sometimes too. But those aren't the real reasons why we don't just relax in peace and faith. You know the real reason why you don't do it? Look at me, listen. It's because you're afraid you don't deserve it. You're afraid that if God really is keeping score, it's not going to end up well for you. And so you don't deserve to sit down and have peace and faith and relax. You're afraid that you don't deserve it. So what you try to do is you try to outrun God's justice, hoping that you can, you can use all this activity and all this anxiety to produce something that's going to make God like you more or make the universe work better. It's karma. You would never admit it. But let me ask you one simple question. Do you think God likes you now, today? Or do you think God is waiting to like a future, cleaner version of you? Do you think God likes you right now? Do you think he's, he's happy with you right now? And if you do, why? If, if your answer to that question is anything other 
than because of what Jesus did, then you're never going to find peace. If you're convinced that, okay, maybe God likes me right now, but it's because I got all this done on my to-do list and I fixed all these problems and I fed all these people and I righted all these wrongs, and that's why God loves me, what happens when you don't? I'll tell you, if I know anything, I know that a, a worldview that says that you're only as good as your last best day, that's not a long-term plan. Are you convinced that God loves you or that God loves a future version of you? Because let me, let me disagree with you. You're right. You don't deserve to sit and relax in peace and faith. You, you don't. And, and neither do I. Paul sums this up really well in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We're not going to go through all of it. But he says, look, yeah, you've done a lot of bad stuff. And, and because of all the bad stuff you did... You really don't deserve peace and faith and, and joy. You don't deserve it. And then in one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible, Ephesians 2.4, Paul says, But God, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. He says, I agree with you. You've done a lot of bad. You've done a lot of wrong. And you probably deserve some really bad things to come your way. But God is so rich in mercy and loves you so much. Notice he doesn't say, but Bill, or but Orlando, or but Malcolm, or but Suzanne, or but Tony. He didn't say, you did all these bad things, but you woke up one day and you fixed it all, now you can have some peace. He doesn't say that. He says, but God fixed it. Verse 5, and even though we were dead because of our sins, yep, you were, he gave us life, when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by grace that you've been saved. That's not fair either. You see, and that's the good news. No, God doesn't operate on a system of fairness. And thankfully, that's the, tr that's the case, because we don't want fair. I don't want what I deserve. You don't want what you deserve. We don't want fair. We don't want karma. We want something far better, far deeper, far more fulfilling than karma, and that's grace. I'll let Paul have the last word with these two verses that are tattooed on my arm because I have to remind myself of this every single day. Paul says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. It's a gift. It's not karma. It's a gift. You can't take credit for it. Verse 9, salvation is not a reward for good things you've done. So no one can boast about it. The good news about it not being a reward is that means you can't have it taken away. If you didn't do anything good enough to earn it, then you can't do anything bad enough to lose it. That's so much better than karma. This is grace. Why do bad things happen to good people? I have no idea. I don't know. And all of my ceaseless activity trying to figure it out is going to result in nothing more than anxiety and depression. And it's going to rob me of my peace. I don't know. But God does. And thank God, He doesn't have a system of fairness for how He keeps score for you and for me. Amen.